0: From the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we totally missed it All today. Right? So, it's the Tiny House Podcast, and I am Alistair McCrawley. No, really. I'm Perry Gruber. This is the Masterpiece Theater <laughs> Edition. Theater Edition. Okay. okay. Tiny okay. okay. So, Tiny, Tiny House Podcast, I'm Perry.
2: I am Shell Boyle. Good
1: job. And this is Habib Kebab. <laughs> <laughs> this is Mark Grimes. And today we have a, a fantastic guest. We have... Um, See, I told you, did you hear uh, him? Yeah, well, we have,
0: she said, and this is Inca, the Kazon. <laughs> so anyway, that's not our guest.
1: That's <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> it's kind of our guest. Yeah. We have another guest, um, Raul Salazar, who's the program manager of Quixote Village um, up in Washington. Um, Raul, welcome. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Welcome you. To be here. So, um... So, Ro, why don't you give us, like, a five-minute description of what Quixote Village is about. I'm really excited to, to hear
3: about this. Yeah, basically, Quixote Village is uh, permanent supported housing for the chron- chronically homeless. Um, it started as a camp, uh, basically uh, what people call a quint city, which was uh, moving around from location to location every few months um, for about six Seven years. Um, the camp itself was supported by local churches, and most of the time, when the uh, camp moved, it was to some sort of church property. Um, and like I said, they were supported by the churches, and anything from you know food to uh, supplies that the camp may have needed, things like that. Um, uh, the city of Olympia had had uh, initiated an ordinance that made it illegal for most people to sleep. On the sidewalks the wow. in the streets in the downtown area, so that's kind of where the camp came from. Um, the churches and, and some other people got together and they protested, and that's how the camp started. Um, so after it floated around for you know that many years, uh, at one point the churches that supported the camp realized that well, we need to get together and create an official organization, a nonprofit organization. And because they had this idea that they wanted to make permanent housing, which was Tehody Village. Uh, so there was this idea. Um, they went through all the steps of creating the actual nonprofit organization. And from there, they, they went through the steps of creating the village and making the, re- the village a reality. Um, I, I wasn't here for the initial planning of all that. I've been with the organization for about two years, which I was with the camp for about a month and then helped transition them from the camp into the permanent Housing, um, so I've been here since the facility opened. Um, but, you know, they, they, they made it a reality. They got through all the red tape. There was, you know, a lot of things they had to deal with. Uh, it, some of it was, you know, neighbors and businesses not wanting this here. Um, our, our board members dealt with that, um, made it happen, and got construction underway. And in uh, December of 2013, we officially opened. Um, we moved everybody that was living in the camp into the village, and we were pretty much full from day one, and um, we went from there.
1: Is there, were there, uh, there's a lot of questions to ask, but first I want to set the context. The um, So so among us three hosts, we have uh, varying opinions about whether tiny houses for homelessness is a good idea. So. Uh, we're really keen on having this conversation and, and getting your point of view and maybe getting some answers to some questions that we have about, about that. So, some, I don't know, question or comment followed by question, but
0: I was having coffee a little over a year ago with the head of the Portland Development Commission and we, talked, we started talking about tiny houses. And he, he brought up the question Is you know, could it be uh, appropriate for a homeless community in Portland? And then followed by, you know, how much are they, what do they cost? And I said, well, I said, you know you have Tumbleweed and some of the other providers out there and they're you know the build cost of a finished home is anywhere between you know forty five and eighty thousand dollars, which to which he kind of not ended the conversation but realized that's not going to be uh, a real solution that's going to work in their budget here in the city of Portland. You know that being said, uh, I know the care homes were built for like about nineteen thousand. Um, yeah. per, per, per home, which is fantastic, but when all the other costs were kind of included, it came up to about 88000 per home for the 30 units. So can you yeah. kind of go into detail or a little bit of detail on that extra, you know, $60,000 per home? Oh, um, the entire
3: village uh, was... I completed for just over three million dollars, I think three point zero five. Um, that includes uh, development costs, infrastructure, materials, labor, community building, permits fees, uh, we had from the prior road improvements and um, donated land. Um, like you said, the cost was about nineteen thousand per unit, but um we Thurston County leaves the to land to us for a dollar a year. I believe the value of the land is $330,000. dollars we just, just over that. Um, we had some donated services from our architect or our civil engineers, things like that. Um, yeah, you mentioned what we actually paid for the village each unit was $88,000. Um, but we didn't have to buy the land. Um, so that, that was a bonus. Um, there was some Permit issues, I believe, with the community building. And I think when they were planning this, if they would have known this was going to be an issue, they would have changed it somehow to save the money. But what I was told by the developers and our board members was that because there's no actual living unit attached to our community building, um, it made it a commercial building, which increased the overall cost of everything by 300000 um, so, or, or just over 300000 so that's kind of what led to the, kind of the inflated cost of each unit when you break it all down. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's as much details, I think, as I got, but, um, I think the average cost for studio apartments for low-income people is about 200000 per unit, and ours, with uh, all the extra costs, of was about $100 a dollars Gotcha.
1: So, so what are the, so you you uh, were you said you were um, working with the the uh, tent city version of yeah. this community before they moved into these tiny houses right yeah okay what um, what what was the state of the land that Thurston County owned before they actually did the work to improve it to where it is now the land
3: that we built the village on yeah was it flat uh, I, I believe it was, we're, we're kind of in a light industrial area, so there aren't really any homes next door to us or anything, and uh, what I've seen in some of the older pictures and what I've been told is this this was some sort of uh, industrial building or something was here, uh, and then it, it, that tow, they tore that down for a while, so that was just making a lot for a long time mm-hmm. um, before it was purchased, so I'm not exactly sure. You know, there had to be. There was some drainage issues, things
1: like that, that they had to improve before they built on it. But I'm not exactly sure what else okay. really was done to it. Okay. W- were you a program manager when the when the community was a tent community, or were you a resident of the
3: community? No, I'm I'm, I'm an employee. Uh, yeah, no, I've never been a resident. I was a pro- I, they, they hired me as the program manager for this project. Got it. Um, and they tried to hire me. You know, obviously before they moved in, because part of my job was to come up with with the lease. You know, the residents have to sign to live here, the rules of the program, um, they, they didn't have anything really in place when they hired me, so they tried to hire me while they were building the camp, so we had time to do all that before we officially opened doors at the, at the village. Um, yeah, that's, that's my story. <laughs> okay, based on,
1: based on what you've experienced, do you think tiny houses are a good answer for the homeless problem?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think what we're doing here is working. Um, What we tell people, you know, we get a lot of interest, you know, as far as the tiny home movement and things like that. We've been contacted by different organizations, but we try to tell people that, you know, with us it's not so much about the tiny home, it's just, it's about housing. our architect and our board decided that the tiny home was the best way to go, um, but because they, they worked with the residents and asked them what, what do you want and you know there was an option of you know just making a big apartment building basically mm. where everybody had their own apartment and um, you know we just mean in theory we'd be the same thing just and everybody would be housed a little differently and um, there were a couple of ideas floating around and the residents were really pretty high on the idea of having their own unit that's where the tiny home thing came into play. Um, Obviously they weren't going to be able to have a full fast home, so um, it really fit what the needs were and what the residents wanted. And you know, everybody living on the streets, living in tents, camping, things like that, I think it was really important to them to have something they could call their own. And I think when you're in an apartment complex, it doesn't really feel like, oh, this is mine, you know? So I think that's kind of where it came from. But it it has worked for us. Um, We're you know kind of a work in progress. In December it'll be two years that we've been open. So you know when we opened our doors, it's it's been kind of learn as we go. You know, and um, we're still working towards becoming the best we can be and operating in a way that's the most efficient and. all our efforts kind of go towards that right now, you know. Uh, but overall, I would say we've been pretty successful, and um, judging from what things were like day one compared to now, there's a big difference um, in, in a positive way. Uh, so, but yeah, I would say the tiny home idea is, is something that could really be replicated somewhere else. And, and we, you know, we've been contacted by a lot of organizations that say they're, they're doing something like this in their state or in their area. Um, I don't know if anything's been completed yet anymore, but um, there's a lot, of, you know, a lot of ideas out there and, and a lot of projects out there according to what I've heard. Hmm.
2: Um, you said that uh, the, the, the the residents were really involved in the development of the community and, and really preferred the tiny houses so that they could each have their own home. Um, I have a couple of questions as a follow-up to that statement. So my first one is... Um, can you talk about the the pride in ownership? Um, can you talk about how, um, again, is this a transitional program? Do people come in and only stay for a few months and then go on to more quote-unquote permanent housing? Um, and can you talk a little bit about the pride of ownership and or the restrictions that you have? Is everybody required to participate in the community in cleaning and raking and painting their house? And, and how do the maintenance, the maintenance and, and all of that fall into that pride of ownership
3: in the community well we're considered permanent housing there's no time limit on how long somebody can stay here oh. uh, we didn't we didn't think it would be wise to bring somebody in who potentially could be disabled and say you know if your year is up you, you need to go and just put them back out on the street if they didn't have anyone to live um we do have some people here who are disabled and we've mentioned that you know this is the best situation I've had in years, and I don't really think I'm gonna go anywhere else. This is I'm gonna stay here as long as I can, um, and that's fine with us. But we also knew that there was gonna be some natural transition. There was gonna be people who just moved on to something bigger and better, and you know their life was stable. Maybe they got a job or went to school and could afford their own place again. Or um, there'd also be people who wouldn't make it, and you know wouldn't uh, be able to follow the rules or didn't like. To live under the rules that we have here, and and would just naturally want to go, um, and that's what we've seen. We've seen the natural transition, I guess you can say. So, so there, there's always going to be units that are eventually open, and we'll, be, we'll always be moving in new people, things like that. Um, as far as the pride of ownership, I think because we're Providing primitive housing, and we're not saying you have to be gone in a year or two years or anything like that. Um, it is, that, that just brings on that natural pride and ownership. I mean, you feel like, well, this is my place. Um, one of the things that we've done is each unit has a yard in front of it, small piece of land, and it's we let the residents decide if they want to have a lawn, or they want to have a garden, or they want to just have you know flowers or whatever. And then you know, most people get into that, and. Um, and it's in the release that they're required to maintain that. Whatever they decide to do, if they have a lawn, they have to mow it. Uh, they have to take care of it. They have to do the weeding. Um, so, in the beginning, it was tough because you know people weren't really used to living in this type of situation. But now, you walk through our property, and there's flowers, there's gardens, there's there's all sorts of stuff, and people are really proud of what they have, and they try to clean it. And you know, of course. For 30 units, there's always going to be somebody who's off, maybe not weeding or doing something, and I'll, I'll give them a gentle reminder and they stay on top of it, but um, that's part of the requirement. Um, also, as far as being part of the community and participating, we have a chores list, um, and everybody's rotated onto this chores list unless they're disabled and, and have a doctor's home, and they you know, can't do chores. Um, but that's how we clean our community building and kitchen the bathrooms, or you know, conference rooms, things like that. Um, the residents are required to be on that list and uh, do their assigned tour for the week. Um, and then they get a couple weeks off and then they'll be back on the list. Uh, that's also part of the lease. that's specified that if you're gonna live here, you have to understand that you're gonna be part of keeping the place clean. Um, and also, you know, if you go into the kitchen to make yourself a meal, you're required to clean up after yourself, just like anywhere else. Um, that,
2: that's how we handle that. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, it sounds like it's working well. You you talked about how it's working much differently and much better now than it was in the beginning. Um, we talked about numbers a little earlier on, and um, have you has anybody done any any sort of uh, predictions about how long these houses are going to last? Um, my perspective is I, I do come I have a bit of um, experience in the low-income sort of housing uh, industry for lack of a better term and um, you're right you know every unit that we that we provide for for homeless and disadvantaged people they are very expensive but part of the reason why they're so expensive you you know you quoted 200,000 per unit on the on the website is because of the fact that those units are expected to last hundred years you know they're they're built to be um, maintained and, and with minimal amount of effort has anybody started to talk about what are the maintenance requirements you know the new roof the new paint and do you have money like that built into your budget and uh, how long do you expect uh, that each house to last
3: uh, I, don't, I have not heard if our builders did some sort of number as far as how long each unit is expected to last um, They were all built on site. Um, They're not, you know, some people see the pictures and they think they're storage containers. Um, No, um, they're not that. They were all built on site with the the foundation and everything, they all have electricity and running water. Um, uh, So I don't know what the life expectancy is of each one, but um, we we have budgeted for maintenance. Um, You know, things have come up in the two years that we've been here. Couple of plumbing issues, things like that, uh, minor things. Some of it is, you know, damage from the actual resident. Other things are just, you know, you know, the materials or whatever. But nothing major so far. Um, you know, our budget is kind of an ongoing thing. You know, we work with we're not profit, so you know, every year we're looking at what are we gonna how much money are we coming up with and you know that includes the salary for the two staff members we have um i'm actually working on a budget right now for next year and um, maintenance is one of those things you know I, I can we've only been here for you know just about two years and so it's hard to say you know what that cost to be i'm assuming that every year the maintenance costs will probably go up a little bit because the units will be older you know every year um i hope that, that answers your question. Um,
2: yeah, like you said, it's this is a new, fairly new project as far as the life cycle of a house. But uh, yeah, thank you. That was a, that was a that was a good answer. And here in the in the tiny house world, they're they're sort of divided between tiny houses on foundations and tiny houses on wheels. They have different yeah. building requirements and zoning requirements. So thank you very much for going into that level of detail. Um, I think it also helps our listeners to be able to visualize. Um, you know, they may not be looking at your website like we are, and it helps sort of visualize these the, all these little houses built on foundations sitting in a row. It's it's quite attractive. I appreciate your investment. You.
1: So, Raul, if you could actually walk us through what these tiny houses look like on the inside. Are they all the same? Are they different?
3: How big are um, they? They're generally the same. They're all 144 square feet um, except for two units, are ADA compliant. So I don't have the exact measurements with me, but they're a little bit wider. And instead of stairs, they have a ramp that leads up to the front door. So you know, if if they need wheelchair access or anything like that. Um, But when you walk into the unit, first of all, you go up the stairs or the ramp, and there's a small port. And that was something the residents really were interested in having in a covered port. uh, there's no smoking a lot in the unit, so the public porch is a good thing. It rains a lot here, so people can sit outside and smoke a cigarette if they want to. Um, and when you walk in the front door, there's it's basically a small room, small living area. It's just a square room. Um, we provide a bed that has storage space underneath the bed, you know, drawers, the uh, mattress and everything there, uh, a desk, a chair, a stool um, and then there's a heating unit in that main room on the floor, just a thermostat concludes unit. And then there's a smaller heating unit in the back. There's a pocket door that separates the back of the unit from that main room. And behind that pocket door, there is a toilet and a sink, and then a closet. And each closet, on top of the closet on a the shelf, there is a small water heater for each unit. Um, and that's about it. It's pretty basic. Um, like I said, there's electricity there. There's uh, heat, water, everything you need. Um, three windows: uh, front window by the front door, and then two on the side of the building. Um, and that's pretty it. It's, it's pretty basic. Like I said, it's not huge. I would say you know smaller than a studio, but um, for people that were living in a tent or a camp, it's it's a, it's a huge improvement. And, you know, you'd have to be here to see it, but you know, people get really creative with what they do in their unit and how they design it and how they decorate. And, um, I do. Uh, I'm required to do inspections. I do inspections every couple of months, and just to make sure that you know the, the fire, you know, the smoke detectors are working, all that, um, and that you know we don't have sleep hoarding things and it's it's uh, in the way of getting out of the unit or it's blocking the heater or anything like that. Make sure that they're staying clean, um, that kind of thing. So.
0: Um, people stay on top of it and it well, pretty well. Raul, yeah. is there any level of uh, kind of expectations on residents to either contribute financially by through finding some kind of work every yeah. month or, or or, and or if they don't, then an increased level of helping around the community and doing things?
3: Well, the residents sign a lease in order to live here and that lease, you know, they'll pay a $100 deposit. Um, and, you know, we fully understand that people that are coming into this situation are are not people that have a lot of money. You know, it's a low-income population, obviously. Um, So we work with them. So if they can pay $50 now and then another $50 later or $20 now, I'll work out a payment plan for them to pay their deposit. And then if they have any income, they're required to pay 30% of that income for rent. Um, And, you know, as you know, the the incomes around here are either none or pretty small. They have some people with disability and, you know, they get... You know, something like seven hundred and some dollars a month from disability um, so we'll, we'll require that they pay us around 30 percent um if you don't have an income if it's zero then um you have zero rent so uh if you do get a job or you do have income then you you have to report that the time you manner to me and uh and we'll figure out the rent from there cool and
1: then how do you i i I presume there's a lot of homeless people in Olympia, like there are in Portland. How do you filter, what's the funnel look like that you use to determine who gets to move in and who
3: unfortunately doesn't? Well, we work with another organization called Sidewalk and they basically feed a waiting list for us. We've given them a pre-application that has our criteria on it. If the person meets that criteria and we have space to the waiting list, then we add their name to the waiting list. When we have an opening, I go onto the waiting list, put a name, contact them, um, and then we schedule a full uh, housing interview. And then, then they fill out a full-on application for housing. Um, a background check has to be done, which is another application that's done by an outside company that does our background checks. Um, and I also do a drug test with them at, during the first meeting. Um, they can't, in the background, uh, we, we can't take of the um, uh, any active warrants to disqualify them from the process and obviously failing the drug test to disqualify them from the process as well. Um, and then our application has a series of questions and you know, some of the questions are asking, can you live in this type of environment where you're sharing a community building and you're going to be around people? And mm-hmm. Because as you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of mental health issues with the homeless and, and we've had plenty of people who come in here and say, I can't do this. I can't live around this many people and, and this is not the place for me. Um, and, and we also have to turn people away for certain issues. So um, that's something that we really take a lot of time when we process somebody and make sure that this is where they can live um, because we only have two staff we're not staffed 24 hours a day um, so if somebody needs that 24-hour level of service this just, unfortunately just isn't the place for them yeah. so yeah we're, we're pretty good about going through those applications and screening people after they initially meet with us and they have an executive committee of residents who were voted in by the other, I said, five people. Um, they actually do an interview with them, too. And although the residents don't have the final say in evictions or admissions, um, they tell us, they think of the person. And sometimes they know them from the streets and they'll say, hey, yeah, I know this person, he's a good person. Um, Maybe he's got a drug problem, maybe he doesn't, or, or, you know, they'll tell us some things that we need to know, and we take it all into consideration, and, uh, but, uh, ultimately the final say is, is with the staff. Interesting.
2: So, uh, we love stories, and we especially love success stories, and we really, really, really love tiny house success stories. Um, do you have, can you, can you brag a little bit? We want to hear the stories about your favorite residents, and uh, you don't have to use names if you don't want to, um. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the people that, you know, the people that you deal with every day and, and how it's really, how these tiny houses have changed their lives and, and how this program has really, really contributed to the to the local community as well. Can you brag a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, there's a couple people that come to mind specifically, but but overall,
3: um, and, and I'll get into that in a second, but overall, it's interesting because I came on board when they were still living in 10. And... The overall attitude and the overall demeanor of the right. residents at the time was pretty bleak. You know, it was winter when I started. It was at the time we having a pretty rough winter. It was, it got down to like 18, 19 degrees um, on a few nights that I had come out to the camp. And they were sleeping outdoors, you know, in this weather. That um, is, you can imagine that I had a lot of stress, to your life, fumbling. We am I going to eat enough tonight? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? You know, um, the camp wasn't really staffed. Uh, they had some the volunteers that would sit at the desk, but, you know, there, were, there was drug use. There were people, visitors coming by that weren't really supposed to be there. There was alcohol use. Um, it wasn't a great place to be, um, but it was their only option at the time. Um, when we moved into the village, it was immediately clear that I was behind them, and um, they now had a place where they had their own toilet. You know, at the camp, they had to use porta-potties. And um, having to get up in the middle of the night in 18 degree weather to go use it, because porta-potties is not, not the nicest thing, but um, that was one of the things the residents would come in. They're like, oh, I can't, imagine. I can't even get used to the idea that I can wake up at night out of my warm bed and just walk to my toilet and use that. Um, but, you know, some of the things like that I think was, was big for people. Um, but it, it, as far as success stories, um, we've had some people that have, that is, we have current residents that are in school, college. Um, uh, that wasn't something that we, we didn't know where that was going to go, if that was going to be something people wanted to do or not. But right now we have about one, two, three, Five people in school, all college, um, and they're working towards you know at least getting an AA degree. And one person is, uh, two of them are working towards a bachelor's degree right now. Um, we have another person that has moved on to bigger and better things. He actually finished his, his bachelor's degree while he lived here, um, and then got out, got a job, and got an apartment. Um, That was one of our, you know, success stories. But the person that comes to mind for me the most, um, you know, in dealing with the homeless population, you're going to deal with mental health issues. You're going to deal with drug use. Um, When you read articles about us or other housing programs, you tend to see that the article wants to focus on kind of the feel-good part of it all. And, And a lot of times they don't mention the fact that our residents are dealing with real world issues, things that people don't like to talk about sometimes. And, um, you know, for me, I have experience dealing with that, and uh, I, that's why they hired me, because they knew they were going to be dealing with drug issues and mental health issues. And we have a female resident who, she was one of our original residents. The first day I met her, she was in the middle of a really, really, really nasty in a sense I addiction. Um, automatically wouldn't really talk to me because she figured, well, he's the bad guy because he's the program manager and um, didn't want much to do with me. Um, he was actually in the process of the camp of deciding whether or not they were going to kick her out of the camp because she'd been caught using drugs in the camp. Um, they voted to keep her in, but only if she did treatment. Um, she entered a treatment program and uh, clean, I was able to move in, uh, you know, with the original group. But, you know, with drug addiction, there's, there's relapse. And, uh, you know, she went back and forth a few times. And, you know, if you use drugs here, it's not an automatic, okay, you're out of here, you broke the rules. Um, our job is to help. And we want to create the best environment for somebody to recover. Um, and we'd be lying if we said, you know, or it just didn't occur here at some point, or you know, somebody did try to speak something in. It's just it's just how this works, um, but we do have a limit. And uh, eventually, if you're endangering the other residents and you're creating an environment that is now going to endanger somebody else's sobriety, um, I do have to ask you to leave. And she pushed it pretty far. And um, I had numerous talks with her, and finally was like, look, at the now she you know she failed another drug test and said so I'm deciding whether or not I'm, ask, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And, and I said, you know the only other option for me is if you enter an inpatient program it's a 60 day program, if you do this, I'll consider letting you stay. Um, but if you don't do it, you're not giving me much of a choice. Um, and if you would have denied the treatment, I wouldn't have said you're out of here because you're denying treatment the drug use sort of continue and it's natural behavior that leads to somebody having to go. Um, but she said, I'll do it. I'll go. And uh, she entered the 60-day program and uh, she did the program successfully. Uh, we got you know good, good information from the counselors there. Um, she came back and She's been back. She is uh, just over nine months clean now. Wow. And she's an amazing, amazing woman. Um, she's a little younger. She has a lot of energy. She's really smart. She just recently finished and completed her GED about two weeks ago. Um, we're slowly trying to get her into, the, you know, kind of like maybe trying to get a job now, things like that. Um, She's very active in the community. She does a lot of our gardening, uh, works in a lot of the flowers and ornamentals around the, the property. Um, we just recently had like a Halloween open house, decorated and pretty much planned that whole thing. Um, she's on our resident committee, so she, she helps out with a lot of things. And uh, I tell her this pretty often, that, you know, I'm very proud of her. You know, because I, I can put you into a program. I can say, hey, this is where you need to go. I can threaten you with your housing or whatever you, you, you yeah. want to do. But you're the one that has to do the work. Right. You know, you're the one that has to go through the treatment. You're the one that has to deal with the addiction. And, you know, she's had a pretty rough life. So, I mean, why she's dealing with those things wasn't a surprise to me. Um, and there were times where I didn't know if she was going to make it. Um, and, and it, you know, it's still not a guarantee that she's made it, but she's been clean for nine months. And she's talks to me on a regular basis. She says, "You know, I've never felt this good. I've never, um, I've never not had the urge to use like I do now. That makes sense. Um, you know, she said even when I've been clean in the past, there's always this. You know, I'm really, I really still kind of want to use, but I just try to fight the urge. She says now I just, I found that I'm, I'm losing that. And there's really no interest. Um, and that's great. That's what we, we want to see." That's uh, very cool. That's awesome. And, yeah. So. yeah. In my opinion, that would be, for me, as the program manager, as somebody who worked really hard with her one-on-one, that's my, you know, that's what makes me keep, you know, that it keeps me coming to work, you know, that's the, that's the success that I like to see. And unfortunately, with, with drug use, uh, you don't see a ton of success. Right. You know, you could have 100 hundred addicts, and you're only maybe going to have maybe five or six get clean. Um, so you're not in it for the numbers but when you do make that change and you do make some progress with somebody it's really great and uh, uh, like I said we constantly remind her how proud we are of her and how you know to keep
1: up the good work awesome so sometimes um, Mark and I have a conversation about this topic of, of uh, tiny houses for the homeless and one of the things that comes up between us is that um, and Excuse excuse me if this sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't, but we... we uh, <laughs> so, so we often wonder, you know, you're, you're giving a house to a homeless person, but oftentimes the homeless person has more uh, complex issues or struggles than just finding a house. Um, and so just giving them a house doesn't really solve the problem. But it, would you say that's not true, given your experience? I mean, I know that there's.
3: are some No, that's, that's, that's exactly true. And in fact, I say that to people because, you know, we've butted heads as an organization with other organizations. We've had people that will criticize our methods um, because, yeah, you, you can get evicted here if you push it far enough, like I said. Um, we're very flexible and, and we're very compassionate. And we'll work with whatever problem somebody's having. There's certain things that we don't tolerate at all, violence. If you punch somebody here, you're gone the next day. That's just how it works. Um, but drug use, mental health issues, we will work with you. We'll get you the help you need. We'll get you where you need to go. We'll hook up with counseling, treatment, whatever it is you need. And like I said, we'll work with relapse. Um, so there's no automatic get out of here. But we've had people in the in the community that are like, well, it's wrong of you to evict people. You should just put up with whatever they do and you just keep them out. And it doesn't work that way, you know, and, and I don't, I've i never known of any program that doesn't have some limit where, yeah, you can't screw up and have to go. Um, so I think that's unrealistic, but uh, the reason we have myself and our other staff members, our resident advocates, is because we completely understand that you can't just house somebody and expect everything to get better. Yeah. Um it doesn't work that way, and I've seen it, you know, I've seen it with some of our past residents who had to go. i've I've seen it in other areas of life and um, I've been I was a probation officer for 16 years before I worked here. and uh, I've seen that kind of stuff and it doesn't work. Um, you have to house them. It's great to have housing because you now have a home base where somebody can shower and shave and maybe prepare for a job interview. but when you're dealing with drug addicts, you give them a house. Now they have a safe, place where they can close the door and do drugs. Right. Um, and you got you have to be realistic about that stuff. And um, and that's not to be negative about you know addiction or anything. It's just the reality. And, and I saw some of that in the beginning. There were the people that said, "Okay, you just gave me a free place to live. I'm going to close my door and do my drugs and have my friends come over and do stuff here, and everything is going to be cool." But what they weren't used to was having someone like me on the staff. I wasn't going to let that happen. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, you know, I worked with, you know, uh, fun stories in the beginning, but, um...
1: <laughs> uh, I'd love to hear we, that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> we, um, you know, we understand that once you're housed, uh, our resident advocate, for instance, uh, she's, her position basically is to do case management, and, uh... They're required to meet with her once a month, set some goals. Those goals could be, you know, I want to do treatment, I want to get a job, I want to go to school. Whatever your goals may be, she's going to help you get there. Um, and that's because we understand that we can't just give you housing and expect everything to get better. you are here to work on everything else and make sure that you're, you're getting what you need. And, um, and if it's an addiction issue, we're here to provide the safest environment for you to recover. You know, and um, it's something we believe in, and um, I, I think it works so far. You know, we, we've come a long way from the first day we opened, and I used to say it was kind of like the Wild West when we opened it. Um, and in fact, the advocate that worked with me was only a half-time position now at full time, so I was here alone a lot of times, and having to deal with having to settle the place down and, and get it in order. And, um, a sure. questions,
0: Raul. Uh, are 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 all the units single occupancy? That's kind of a quickie one. And then um, the the village was kind of built out of a we have this tent city problem. But obviously, you know, there's 30, 30 tiny house units. Uh, did the, so? Did the tent city go away fully? Oh yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah,
3: so it is one person per unit um, school adults, men and women, uh, the tent city did go away, um, there have been some unofficial camps in the woods where, you know, seven eight people get together and make a camp, but, you know, the police try to stay on top of that, uh, there's talk in the city right now of creating another organized uh, tent city somewhere, uh, because obviously we're able to house 30 people, that doesn't solve the homeless issue in Olympia, I mean, we're just able to house 30 30 of those homeless people. Um, but, you know, it, at least it helps. But, uh, yeah, there's there's people who think there's a need for it, and um, they, uh, I, I don't know how close they are to actually making something I like that happen, but, uh, you know, we've heard a lot of chatter about it. So, Are there, are there
1: plans for another tiny house community?
3: Um. On our end, right now, we're in the real, 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 early stages of talking about what can our organization do more of. Um, Can we be involved with creating more housing? Um, Are there other things in the community that we want to be involved with? But for now, I mean, these first two years, all our energy has gone into making this place work. Because because when we opened, it was pretty clear that you can't just open and expect, okay, we're all good, everything's going to work out. There were bumps in the road. There were, you know, curveballs thrown at us. Things happened here that we didn't expect, um, and we dealt with it and we worked with it. But you know, with only two staff members going here, twenty-four hours a day, it was a lot of work. And. Um, so, you know, right now all our energy is focused on making sure we're in the best place we can be, um, making sure we operate smoothly and we're efficient, and, and we're providing the residents with what they need, and, and we're always looking at other areas, of you know, what more can we do for them, or how can we get them more involved in certain things, so um, right now there's no active plan to build anything new, but there's, there's talk is up there right now with our board members. What if,
1: what if the homeless person has a pet? Say that
3: again. What if the homeless person has a dog? Are you pet friendly? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, we our policy says no pets, but service animals are allowed. So if, if if you have a service animal, that has to you know has to have a doctor's note and paperwork, you know, all that. We have requirements there. So we do have some cats, and we have uh, three small dogs, um, but those are all approved service animals, what and you the, know most of them.
1: What are the cats say that again? The service animals.
3: Well, uh, I would say I think all of our service animals right now are, uh, they fall under what they call like a a therapy pet or a a companion animal. So most of the people are dealing with mental health issues, and the doctors have recommended that for their depression or for whatever mental health issue they have, they they have actually a service thing. That's interesting. I actually read a, uh, a, did I read it? podcast? I don't
0: remember. Anyway, but it was talking about. Um, how good animals are for homeless people. And it's kind of counterintuitive
3: because a lot of people kind of had that attitude about, oh, well, you have an animal and now you're having to feed it and it's met, but it's actually incredibly good for people. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that it, it seems to be helps keep spirits up with people here. And even if it's not their animal, other residents, you know, will come by and pet somebody's dog or hang out with it. And it just seems to put people in a better mood. I personally, I'm, you know, I'm a dog owner and I feel like you know, my dogs are. You know, I think they put the family in a better mood, and they uh, they're good for my kids and that kind of thing. So, yeah, you know, I'm all for it as long as people follow the rules and get, get required people and all that. Right. Very, nice. very
2: cool. Well, thank you very much. I mean, we've we've, uh, we've I've learned a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've definitely come Thanks. away from this more educated. Um, so, in closing, um, we just have one more question for you, and that is. Uh, what,
3: what is in your future, or uh, what do you see? What's next for Raul and for the village? Yeah, well, you know, like I said, it's, it's all about making sure we are the best we can be. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the man here at the village. I'm the, I'm the supervisor here, and, and I see my co-worker, you know, technically I'm her supervisor, but she's my teammate and we're in this together and um, we're just always working to try to make things as good as they can be here, but we work really closely with the residents as well. So, I mean, for the future, you know, I just see that uh, hopefully, you know, three, four, five years down the line, uh, we're we're really solid. We're really a big player in the um, housing community here in Olympia. Um, and we're we're a good example for other people to see us and say, well, that works, now let's do it in our community. And maybe just being a good example will kind of help the whole homeless situation all around. Um, and that's what we're starting to see. We, we I've been contacted from people all over the country, uh, people in other countries, um, trying to do something similar, and they asked our advice, and if I can... Help other agencies, other organizations avoid some of the maybe the early mistakes we made or you know things like that. Um, I'm definitely will be there to help them out and uh, give them advice and and then we run on board as well as always available to talk as well. So, kind of what I see. Awesome. Cool.
1: Well, thank you again, um, Raul Salazar, for being our guest today and for tolerating our dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> <No problem. laughs> you for having me. Yeah. And listeners be sure to tune in next week here on Tiny House Podcast. Absolutely. Bye Have a good
2: week.
1: See ya. Bye. Okay. Thanks a lot, Raul. That was awesome, man.
0: Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Main. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sitecast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon.